Please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 1 through 13, my preaching portion, or verses 4 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Erodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help those women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Grass withers and flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's uh, pray and ask his blessing upon our time this evening. Oh, Lord our God, we do uh, thank you for your word, for your statutes. We pray, O Lord God, that by your Spirit that he would give us understanding, that we may know your testimonies, and that we might apply them to our lives. Lord God, again, we pray that you would bring that faith and bring us the will to do those things that please you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I received in the church mail a newsletter from Centra, Centra Hospital, and the lead article was titled, Not Your Father's EAP, Not Your Father's EAP, and I thought, what does that acronym EAP mean? Well, maybe you don't know, but uh, the article went on to call it, it's called the Employee Assistance Program, Employee Assistance Program. EAPs are designed to help employees meet the challenges of modern life as they struggle with family and with work. The article informs the reader that EAPs differ today than they did in earlier times um, from what companies and industries perhaps offered our parents in days gone by. 
Now, here's a statistic for you uh, from that article. I didn't think it was this high. The article went on to say that 60 to 70% of those who seek the help of EAPs today do so for stress-related issues. Stress-related issues. The article says, and I quote, stress, anxiety, and depression are keeping employees away from their jobs in record numbers. 80 million workdays are reported to be lost annually to these three issues, end quote. That's staggering. And all of that's pre-COVID. That was all pre-COVID. I read uh, recently that COVID-19 has triggered a 25% increase in stress and depression. In fact, I learned not too long ago that there is now a new anxiety today. It's called mask-related anxiety. Mask-related anxiety. Well, the question is, the Bible have anything to say about these issues that is a real help, or are we left to the medical health professionals? Well, the Bible actually does have much to say about stress, anxiety, and worry, and that's the focus of our attention this evening. One-point sermon. One-point sermon. Starts with a couple of questions. Anxious, worrisome, lacking inner peace, Trust God by faithful obedience in Jesus Christ, and you'll have the peace of God. Philippians is an interesting epistle. It has different themes that run through it. Certainly, as we have noticed uh, this morning and even this evening, there's that, that theme of joy. The theme of joy is present in the book. Rejoicing in all circumstances. Another theme is unity in the church. And the third theme is the sanctification, the godliness, the holiness of a believer. Now, this theme of rejoicing appears in verse 4. Many look at verse 4 in chapter 4 as starting an entirely new section, but I think it's rather transitional from the two previous verses. In verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul names two women who are not getting along very well in this congregation in Philippi. Now, we know that before he mentions their names, and I bet you you are really glad an epistle has not been written with you, with your names mentioned in this particular uh, capacity. But Paul names these two women, and we, we know that before he drops these names, that he has primed the pump uh, by setting forth how one overcomes divisions uh, in the body of Christ. Again, it's putting off the pride, putting off the pride, putting off the selfishness, and putting off one's own self-interest, and putting on humility, and putting on the interests of others. And Paul uses the greatest example of humility of all in the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2. You might, tonight before you go to bed, read Philippians chapter 2. And again, the prime example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, in the interest of His people, in the interest of you, how Christ took Himself human nature, human body, how Jesus Christ went to the cross for the sins not only of the saints in Philippi, but also to the saints here at Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so Paul in verses 2 and 3 encourages, he urges others in the congregation to help these two ladies work out their conflict between one another. The command to rejoice in the Lord is tied to the previous verses in this way. 
Yes, there have been problems. Yes, there have been divisions in the congregation in Philippi, but problems have been given to them in order they might work out these problems to the glory of God. See, we often see conflict and we run from conflict, but we need to see that when conflict comes our way, it's an opportunity to glorify God. Ken Sandy has written a book on it called Peacemakers, Peacemaking Ministries, and he talks about, number one, you know, you, you see these conflicts for the purpose, intent, purpose of glorifying God, glorifying God. And so again, that we solve problems this way to bring glory to God, solving issues that come our way, solving problems God's way. And even in this situation of disunity, God is at work. Remember from this morning, Paul writing in chapter 1, that uh, God is going to take an evil thing such as hard feelings and work these things out, that God is in your circumstances and God is doing something in your circumstances. It's true in conflict as well. So be it anger, miscommunication, uh, disruption of unity, a party spirit, God will bring good out of it because we know that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. Romans 8.29 gives us a purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, that you might become more like Christ. So in the conflicts, the situation that you find yourself, as you seek to solve problems God's way, It's the ways God is working through you that you might become more and more like Jesus. It's the sanctification of believers. That's what Paul is addressing here. It's not only rejoicing, but addressing the sanctification of believers. One commentator even suggested that we would not have this epistle to the Philippians that speaks volumes, volumes to unity and encouragement believers who are suffering persecution. They're suffering persecution if this problem had not occurred in the congregation in Philippi. I mean, just think about that. And one of the reasons for the writing of this epistle addresses the disunity, the conflict within the church in Philippi. And even though things were not all that well in the church, at least between these two ladies, what does Paul say? Rejoice. And the immediately preceding clause is that their names are in the book of life. That's interesting, too. He drops their name here, but he also says that their names are in the book of life. That's a th- the reason for rejoicing, of knowing. I mean, this is in God's inerrant word that these two ladies and his companions are in the book of life. It certainly is a reason for rejoicing. So again... We learned in chapter 1 this morning, when Paul speaks of his being in chains, still advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a time to rejoice in the Lord, is a time to praise his holy name. Circumstances alone, circumstances alone do not determine the condition of the heart and the mind. So as a Christian, you can be joyful even when circumstances might be dark and dreary. And didn't Paul say that in uh, chapter 4 here? He's learned to be content in whatever circumstances they are, in plenty and in want. He's learned contentment. By the way, the, you look ahead here. Verse 13 gives the, gives the secret. He said, I've learned the secret. The secret is found in verse 13. I can do all things through him 
who strengthens me. You, Christian, can do all things through God who strengthens you. That's the promise. That's the secret of learning contentment. Now, the transition uh, continues in verse 5. Let me read verse 5. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The uh, word translated for, for forbearing here, and I use the New American Standard Version, probably different from many of you, New American Standard uh, Version. Uh, it's one of those Greek words that does not have a direct English counterpart. Uh, I suppose if we were to look at every English version in the sanctuary this evening, we'd have maybe a half a dozen different translations for this word forbearing. But instead of us doing that now, let me tell you what I've learned from different English versions. Uh, Translated for the word forbearing. Forbearing, reasonableness, moderation, mildness, gentleness, leniency, big-heartedness, yielding, patience. All these assorted definitions may, in fact, even be more confusing to you now that I've thrown all these out before you here. But remembering the context helps us. We always need to remember the context. And if we view this verse as relating to verses 2 and 3, it's transitional. Work out the problems between these two ladies, amicably, friendly, well-meaning, with forbearance lovingly, and do it with sincerity. The manner in which you seek to bring peace will be well known to all men. Now, we often don't think about it, but the way that we handle problems uh, among our families, among the congregation, among the church, it's bearing witness to a watching world, a watching world. It bears testimony to the watching world. So let us do this with grace. The Lord is near or at hand. Now, as we move to uh, the second portion of verse 5, Paul writes, the Lord is near. Now, I don't quite get this, but some commentators believe that this has reference to the second coming of the Lord, and they cite the last two convert, uh, concluding verses of chapter 3 in their context. So let me read this. He says, for, the, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await for Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And so they kind of tie it in with this, and they say that the Lord is near, references the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think the more immediate context are verses 2 and 3. The Lord is at hand. Remember, this book is about, what, the sanctification of believers. Believers becoming more and more godly, becoming more and more like Jesus. Having received the new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit, believers are enabled by the Holy Spirit to change. You see, that's what makes biblical counseling effective. I'm counseling individuals that are born again. They have the power to change. Unbelievers can't change. They don't have a Holy Spirit. They can do temporarily stuff. They can do um, superficial things. But to get to the root of the problem, you have to actually address the heart. And I don't know anybody, no psychologist, no psychiatrist, no pastor can reach the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. 
pastors and biblical counselors use the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, to direct people to start thinking about their hearts. So Christians are capable to change. So again, having received the new birth from above, we believers are capable to so change by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So in other words, God has not forsaken the Philippian church, though they're going through a tough time. Christ is near to help. The Lord is near to help. I'm going to look at, uh, look at 2.13, chapter 2, verse 13. What does Paul write? He says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is near. God is working in you. The Spirit of God is at work in you. You see, Philippians 4, 5 is very much akin to Galatians 6, 1. Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, even if such a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, look into yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, this congregation here in Philippi may have been concerned about all the news about this contention and this disunity, how it's going to affect Paul, who's in prison, and how it's going to um, spread out into the watching world. And so the apostle, having given it a treatise on how unity and how to be unified in the church and how to bring it about, now provides instruction on anxiety. So he's given instruction in chapter 2, how to deal with humility. We uh, take off our pride. We put on our humility, we put the interests of others first as God in Christ put our interests first and that he lived the perfect life, laid down his life as that perfect atonement, was crucified even to the point of death, death on the cross. And so now Paul is going to address the issue of anxiety, how what's going on in this congregation might bring stress and added problems to Paul in prison and even to the watching world, he's going to address their anxiety. Now, anxiety is often the response that we have when we encounter difficulties in life. There's a lot of bumps in the road of life. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, uh, uses the word anxiety six times. In fact, we'll keep our fingers here in Philippians 4, we're coming back, but look in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. In fact, let me read that for you. And I just want you to note and count the number of times that the word anxious or anxious thoughts appear. Your version might use the word worry in these verses. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 and following. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. 
Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is live today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Six times. Count the word anxious, anxiety, six times. We're not to be anxious about what we eat, drink, or with to clothe ourselves. Now you might, you and I might say to one another, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it in order to encourage or admonish perhaps even in a helpful way. You see, when Jesus says it, or when the Apostle Paul, who's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says it, it comes with the force of a moral command. So if God tells you don't do something and you do it, what's that called? It's called a sin. Anxiety and worry is sin. Now, I might mention uh, here um, in Matthew's Gospel here, um, the word anxious and worry is derived from the word care, the word care. So there is an anxious care, but that only appears like twice in the New Testament. I'll give you those two examples. So there's a place for anxious care, but I submit to you that most of our anxiety and most of our worry is not out of care. Context, uh, Jesus, age 12, remember that? They went to the, to the feast in Jerusalem, separated from his parents for three days, and his parents were very concerned concerning uh, about him. Like, you know, Jesus, where have you been? They said to him, uh, your, Mary said to uh, Jesus, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. That's an example of anxious care. And as a grandparent, and I know as parents, we can get have an anxious concern for our children and our grandchildren. We know that. That's legitimate. Uh, the other one uh, concerns uh, waiting, waiting anxious, anxiously waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so we do have that apprehension, and we all want to say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. So there, there's that anxiety. So that's a proper anxiety. But what Jesus is addressing here in Matthew chapter 6 and what Paul is addressing here is a sinful anxiety. Anxiety is sin. Weary is a synonym for anxiety. Weary is sin, as is anxiety. Now, most Christians don't believe that worry and anxiety are sin. And I suspect that's why it's so commonplace today. Everybody has stress. Everybody has anxiety. Everybody has worry. It's commonplace. I don't know if that book is still back on the book table, the shelf back there, but there's a, a book by... Jerry Bridge is called Respectable Sins, The Sins That We Tolerate. Worry and Anxiety are among the top ten in that book. And I submit to you that if we as Christians catch on that anxiety and worry is sin, 
and we confess it as we would to the sin of theft or lying. I think it would revolutionize how we deal with propensities to be anxious and to worry. Now, a couple of reasons why anxiety is sinful. First, it's a failure to trust God. It's a failure to trust God. I mean, if God provides for the birds of the air, will he not also provide for you, those of you for whom he sent his son to save you from your sins? I mean, if God provides for such a great thing as our salvation, will he not provide for these little things? The second reason is sinful to worry or be anxious is because it's a lack of acceptance of God's providence in our lives. It's a lack of accepting God's providence in our lives. Providence, again, you can look in the Confession of Faith. It's a chapter devoted to of providence. It's how God rules, how he controls his creation. It's providence. So it's a lack of trusting God, and it's a lack of trusting his providence. Again, how God orchestrates all the circumstances in life for his own glory and for the good of the church. You're part of his creation. I mean, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're a part of his church. The things that you find on your plate, so to speak, have been put there by God. To his glory and to your good. But, you see, worrying Christians give evidence that they disbelieve that God will take care of them. And the thing about sin is that You just can't stop doing it. Now, you might for a moment, but in short order, the temptation comes back and you succumb to that temptation. The sin of anxiety, the sin of worry, has to be put off and something else has to be put in its place. The answer is not inaction. The answer is not apathy. Nor does one just break the bad habit. It has to be replaced, and such is the nature of sin. And the beauty of God's Word is that He gives us a substitute. He gives us something to put in the place of our sin. A godly substitute or virtue that's applied when the temptation rolls around again to stop worrying. So, be anxious for nothing. That's what Paul says. a command. Be anxious for nothing. How can that be? I mean, we've got to be anxious for something, right? Well, that's not what God's Word says. Nothing. The command is not to worry about anything. And so we ask ourselves in this worry work of time in which we live, the society in which we live, how can that be? God in his grace helps us. He gives us an action plan actually in these verses here. Once again, we see the real life example of put-offs and put-ons. You read that throughout scriptures. Proverbs are great put-offs and put-ons. You know, it speaks about... uh, putting off anxiety, putting off anger, putting it off, and then what to put on in its place. So the action plan. Put off the sin and put on godliness. Here in verse 6, we put off anxiety, indicated by the words, be anxious for nothing, and in its place, look at the remainder of verse 6 and note the contrast. Be anxious for nothing... But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in everything. Not just some things, but in everything, in everything, where there's that temptation to be anxious, that temptation to worry. By prayer and supplication, let your thanksgiving be known to God. This is what you do in the place of worrying. First, prayer. Prayer must always replace worrying. See, when we pray, we recognize that we're not in control. Who's in control? God is. God is sovereign. God controls all things. We recognize that we are not controlled. It's beyond our control. That's why we pray. It's beyond ourselves. We can't control this. In fact, we find that we control very little in our lives. God controls all things. We go to the one who is in control. Prayer acknowledges God is sovereign and acknowledges that God cares for you and that God loves you. Next, it must be fervent, specific, accompanied by thanksgiving. Well, thanksgiving in what sense? Well, not that we thank God for the pain. It's not that we thank God for the sorrow itself. But we thank God for what he intends to accomplish through this problem. Again, he's put it on your plate. We thank God what he is doing in us and for us, never leaving us nor forsaking us, and what he intends to do by putting this problem on our plate. The words of Apostle Peter are helpful from 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We recognize he's all sovereign God, that, Lord, you put this circumstance on my plate for particular reasons. I humble myself. I submit myself to this. And then I cast all of my anxiety. I put my anxiety, my worrisome, my apprehension on you because, Lord God, I know you love me and you care for me and you'll never leave me nor forsake me. So, in putting off the pride and the anxiety, we call upon him in prayer because, again, we know he loves us and that he'll take care of us. Now, I understand it's not easy to give thanks to God when in pain or in fear. But there is always the fact, and you as believers, you know this, there's always the fact that God's in our troubles, and we saw that in chapter 1. He's at work, and he's going to bring about something good. Good, certainly for his glory, but also for you, you, his church. For that even if it's not apparent at that particular time when you're tempted to worry, even at that moment, you're always to give thanks. Thankful prayer. Thankful prayer brings release from fear and anxiety because, again, it assumes and affirms God's sovereign control over every circumstance and that his purpose is his glory and the believer good. So, having put off anxiety and putting on prayer, what's the result? Look at verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace of God. Twofold, there's that initial peace which is assumed here in the text. In other words, before you come to Jesus Christ, you are at war with God. There's enmity in your heart. 
people don't have peace with God. Unbelievers are not at peace with God. They're at war with God. That's what Scripture tells us. And you, before you came to Christ, you were at war with God. I was before I came to Christ. And those of you who, before you came to Christ, were at war with God. So it assumes that there's that initial peace, that you've been born from above, you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer under condemnation as we now are in Christ Jesus. We have that peace with God. That's assumed here. The Scripture also speaks about this other peace that you can have. So we have that initial peace of being in Christ, but then having the peace in the circumstances, in the life in which we find ourselves. So we have a confident trust that the Lord, Lord's flawless wisdom and infinite power that provides the calm during the storms. Okay, so what we do here, we're dealing here with this initial peace that we have, and then secondly, we have the peace that comes, and how this peace comes. You know, people that are anxious and stressful, they don't have that peace. They lack that, that peace of which Paul's addressing here. Now, Paul in 4.7 further defines this peace of God that surpasses all human understanding. One commentator says it transcends human intellectual power, human analysis, human insights, and human understanding. You see, the real challenge in the Christian life, the real challenge in the Christian life is not to eliminate every unpleasant circumstance, but it's to trust. It's to trust in the good purpose of our infinite, holy, sovereign, powerful God in every difficulty. Those of you who honor the Lord God by trusting him will experience the blessings of his perfect peace. And then note the results. God's peace will guard you from anxiety. God's peace will guard you from worry and doubt. Guard here, Paul uses as a military term. It only kind of makes sense as he's chained to this guard 18 inches from him. It only makes sense that he would use a military term such as guard. God's peace guarded and protects believers who confidently trust in him. Now, Paul's use of the phrase heart and mind here is not to make a distinction between the heart and the soul or the mind, but he's merely making a comprehensive reference to the believer's inner person. The soul, the heart, the mind, the, the real person, the inner you. That's what he's talking about here. Uh, this, uh, the peace is not uh, available through any human sources or invention, but only through Jesus Christ. You know, taking a pill will not bring you peace with God. So the end result is peace with God. The peace, if you notice, is also mentioned in verse 9. The things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God shall be with you. So you find it in verse 7, you find it in verse 9, often refer to this as the Oreo passage. Uh, Oreo, you got the wafer on top, the wafer on the bottom, the verse 7 and 9, top and bottom. In the middle, you got the really good stuff, right? The sweetness and the cookie. And so what, that's what we find in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. I'm not going to take time to unpack each and every one of those words. But that's what we're supposed to think on. I mean, where do we find things that are true? Okay. 
Where do we find things that are lovely? Where do we find things that are pure? Where do we find things that are of good repute? Someone once said, we find it all in Christ. We find all of these virtues in Jesus Christ. That's who we need to be thinking on. Thinking on Christ. Having our thoughts captive to Jesus Christ. Every thought captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the things that are pure and lovely and of good repute. This verse teaches the criteria on what you need to be thinking upon. The things you need to be concentrating. So we don't spend time on worrying or anxiety or anxious about things tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and how often we feel so foolish, like the day after when tomorrow comes, how foolish we are, wasting all this time and wasting all this nervous energy on worrying. Worried yourself sick for that, for nothing? One fellow gives a great analogy when he asks, how is a rocking chair like worry? Think about that. Imagine a, in your mind's eyes a rocking chair. How is a rocking chair like worry? Well, you do a whole lot of energy, a, lot, a whole lot of energy is expended rocking, and you get nowhere. The same thing with worrying. You spend a lot of energy, a lot of nervous energy, worrying about this that you have no control over, absolutely no control over, worry and anxiety. That's how worry is related to a rocking chair. I guess a whole lot of energy, and you know it, a lot of nervous energy, and you get you nowhere. It's for nothing. It's an effort of futility. What does worrying about tomorrow bring you today? Nothing. Nothing but anxiety and a waste of time. We're to think upon those things that are true. Maybe true, but is it honorable? Does your thinking pursue interests of others first? God in your word tells us what is right in his word. That needs to be in your thinking. Pure thought life. So often, such anxiety comes to pass because one's thought life is amok. Thinking on things that are impure. Things on, thinking about things that are ungodly. Things upon, thinking about things that are unchaste. Rather, think and concentrate on that which is of good repute. Excellent, worthy of praise. Let your mind dwell on these things. Soak on things. Ponder, meditate upon them. That's why I'm a big advocate for memorizing Scripture. Hiding God's Word in your heart that you might not sin against Him. Put off worry, put off anxiety by replacing it with three things which work in tandem. In verse 6, it's prayer. In verse 8, it's thinking. In verse 9, it's practice. Prayer, thinking, and practice. Do you see that in the scriptures there? Prayer, thinking, and practice. And you keep doing it so that it actually becomes second nature when you're tempted to be anxious, tempted to worry. And note the promise. If you do these things, then your lifestyle begins to change with practice, and you'll have peace. And the source is God. The source is God. It's not any self-help book. It's not any self-help practice. It's not any pill, but it's God. The God of peace shall be with you. See, I submit to you that worry and anxiety are spiritual problems. God here calls it sin. Treating spiritual problems with drugs may relieve a little bit, may relieve the symptoms, but it doesn't address the heart of the matter. 
Medication often masks the real problem. It's interesting that so many people on many of these medications continue to suffer from the very things the medication is supposed to alleviate. God, who created the soul, God created the soul, the inner person, tells us all about the soul here in his word and how to minister to the soul. So are you anxious, worrisome, you lack inner peace? Trust God with faithful obedience in Jesus Christ, and you'll find that the Lord God will give you that inner peace. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we are so thankful that your word is sufficient not only unto salvation, but also sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Lord, we know that anxiety and stress and apprehension and worry is a part, a big part of our life, and it affects our godliness. Lord, we trust that you've given us eyes to see and the ears to hear what you think of worry, sinful worry, and sinful anxiety. Lord, help us to come grips with that. And where there's sin, that we might own it, we might confess it, and by your grace we might turn from it, and that we might aim to do the things that please you and honor you and glorify you. Hear our prayers, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.